Hi, this is Kevin Oakes, author of Culture Renovation, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Kevin Oakes. Kevin is the CEO and co-founder of the Institute for Corporate Productivity, also known as I4CP. It's a leading authority on next practices in human capital. Supported by a powerful community of human capital practitioners, I4CP provides insights that help organizations better anticipate, adapt, and act in a constantly changing business environment. Kevin lives in Seattle, Washington, and is here to talk about his book, Culture Renovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Bill. Glad. It's a pleasure to have you. Say, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Oh, I'm sure I have many, but I, I guess I'll uh, revert to my dad, who I dedicated the book to. My dad was an uh, interesting guy. He, he's still alive, so he isn't interesting. And he grew up on a chicken farm, believe it or not, where my grandfather and he handled 10,000 chickens and sold eggs as the main business. And so my dad grew up this farmer who went off to college and then became a very successful businessman. CEO of a, a bank in Massachusetts, which is where I grew up, uh, and then later CEO of an insurance company. And I always marveled at his work ethic and really just how he took it upon himself to get out of the farm and become a business. And uh, later, he and I went into business together. And really, I, I credited him at the beginning of the book with making me an entrepreneur and an, able to write a book that anybody would ever care about because it really did all emanate from my dad. So I'll have to go with that, Bill, and hopefully that. When you think of working with your dad, what's a message or a lesson, a theme, or even a saying that he had that was something that you uniquely attribute to him that you learned and helped you learn more about being a good business person? I think with my dad, it was always do things the right way, don't cut corners, and there's no substitute for work, which he had in spades. And it, it's funny, I have two brothers and we joke about this to this day. When we were younger, our dad got us working when we were 12 or 13. Doesn't even seem legal now, but back then it was. And our first job was working in the tobacco fields in Massachusetts in the Connecticut River Valley, which is actually famous for shade leaf tobacco. And I look at my work ethic and I can trace it right back to those days that was probably the hardest job I ever had in my life. And it was the first job I ever had. And our dad made us do that, I think, really to help us understand what it means to work hard and not have excuses. And it's not all about working hard. Of course, it's about working smart in today's business world. But I think my work ethic goes right back to those days of picking tobacco and just in conditions today, I think back on and I can't even believe I used to do that for, <laughs> for a summer job. My gosh, I can relate to that as well. Even though I grew up in a suburban area, my dad was friends with a dairy farmer. And when I was seven, eight, nine years old, he'd leave me there for a couple of weeks. And after waking up in the mornings, driving there and, and milking cows and shoveling a lot of cow poop, coming back 
and lifting bales of hay and learning to drive tractors at a young age, again, not legal and probably not with child labor laws that would fly these days. But I never complained when he asked me to shovel snow or mow the lawn after that. So I, I really relate to that work ethic part that's embedded through experiences as a, a young guy. And that's exactly what my experience and our experience was growing up. And today, nothing seems that difficult. If I feel like I've got something that's a real challenge, I think back to those tobacco days, and it's never going to be as hard as that. It's great to have that reference experience. And I know that when you started your business, it wasn't just, I think I'll start a business. And the first month you made 100000 and then it just grew from there. It was a struggle, wasn't it? Yeah, it certainly was. And I've started businesses a couple different times, and they've always been a struggle at the beginning. You just have to have faith, right? And keep plugging away. But I remember when I started the first business, I didn't know what I was doing. This was a e-learning company back before we called it e-learning. And this was uh, in the early 90s. I was just outside of Boston. And this was the, my dad had gotten involved with the business and it was just the two of us. And I was reading everything I could to make myself as educated as possible. I was attending as many conferences as I could. I was reaching out and talking to people in the industry all the time, just so I could educate myself on the industry so that I could try to build a company around it because I felt like it was going to be a, a big industry. And there's plenty of days where you just doubt yourself and, and doubt whether this is ever going to work, but kept plugging away. And again, you go back to that work ethic. I just Every time I'd run into an obstacle, I'd just work harder. And we eventually grew the company. We bootstrapped it into one of the largest uh, computer-based training companies in, in the U.S. And uh, we're working with some of the most iconic corporations out there, helping them develop and put their learning online. So it was, it was a great experience and really set the stage for everything else I've done in my career. So I'm thinking back, and if you had made this big growth in the early 90s, it would have been based around CD-ROMs <laughs> versus late 90s where it was online. You're right. We, in fact, when we started the business, it was pre-CD-ROM, believe it or not. And a lot of people don't remember this, but there was a big debate whether the CDI format, which Philips had, or the multimedia format, which IBM had created, or the CD-ROM, which was more of a general industry standard, were, were going to be the winners in that space. And I had decided after some time that CD-ROM was likely to be the winner. And we just started developing our computer-based training for CD-ROM. This is before the web was really invented. And we became one of the larger producers of CD-ROM-based learning before we eventually migrated everything over to the web. A few years back, my son saw a CD-ROM burner that we had at the office and said, what's that for? And I explained to him how useful it was to burn things and have backups on CD-ROM. He just shook his head at me. I, I have the same experience with my son. He, he can't quite imagine it. I used to tell him how I, I would open up desktop computers and put video cards in those computers and what we had to do just to have multimedia on a computer, which kids don't even think about. But back then, it was such a novel. Let me just point out for other people listening, making that decision as to what CD-ROM format to follow was a tremendously big decision because of the investments that were involved and where you would have been exposed had you chosen incorrectly. And that was a big risk, wasn't it? It was. I And I personally witnessed some companies who chose different formats not make it as a result. I felt very fortunate that we had chosen the right format, but it was certainly after a lot of research and a lot of discussions and looking at where the market was going. You know, prior to all that, we were actually doing some laser disc work. Now, you may remember that, Bill. 
Today, uh, laser discs are, they make great clocks, but that's about all they're good for. But uh, we were doing early laser disc work and then just uh, MS-DOS based learning before the before Windows was a really big thing and, and the CD-ROM became the format. I spoke with Matt Sweetwood not long ago, and he, in the 1980s, a few years prior to you starting this company, was overseeing one of the largest camera supply companies in New Jersey's digital cameras were coming on board. And he also had to make a lot of pivots and changes to not just adapt to the market, but to keep his employees, to reposition the business. And it was a decision fraught with making the right decisions and being nimble and adept at knowing what the market was going to do and paying attention to how consumers are voting. With- That's a good story because I do think agility is one of the most key tra- any successful company can have, the ability to just pivot when you see the market pivoting. You know, a lot of companies struggle with that, but the successful ones, they know how to be agile and they know how to pivot very quickly. I think many companies have the capability of being agile, but many aren't even paying attention. Why is it that some companies, even with the knowledge, the experience, the media stories that cover the importance of this, why do some of them still look inward rather than outward? When we were setting out to talk about culture change, a lot of people use the word culture transformation. We chose to use the word renovation because that's what most successful companies do. They renovate what they have for the future, keeping what made them good to begin with, but uh, they don't ever rest on their laurels. What I talk about in the book are several companies that did, unfortunately, rest on their laurels. One of the more famous stories is Blockbuster. There was a point in time back in 2000 when Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, went in to see the CEO of Blockbuster and tried to sell him Netflix. And the, the price tag was $50 million at the time. And Blockbuster basically laughed Reed and his, his executive team out of the offices at the, the thought that they would pay $50 million for Netflix. Of course, Blockbuster is now defunct and uh, Netflix is over $200 billion in market cap. So it's a little bit laughable to think back on it. But to answer your question, Bill, when you think about why are companies not as agile or as perceptive as they should be about the future, there's a few things that come to mind. One is they do get complacent, resting on their laurels. And it goes back to uh, Andy Grove and Intel saying only the paranoid survive. There's a lot of truth to that. You really have to be somewhat paranoid about what's happening out in the marketplace. In fact, I often will show companies the list of unicorn companies out there. Those are private companies with a valuation of a billion dollars or more. And the number of unicorns has really proliferated over the last few years. And they all have one thing in common, and that's they're disrupting a staid industry or a staid company with a new technology or a new business model. And so I think you have to keep your eyes out on a regular basis and you know look for those unicorns. In fact, I often suggest to companies they create a little committee internally called a kill the company committee, which is basically trying to think like a unicorn. If we were going to put ourselves out of business, what would we do? What would we you know, do differently? What would we make? What would we create? That'll help you stay ahead a little bit of those unicorns. The other thing that I see happen quite often is the leadership team or, and or the board of directors are too homogenous. There's not enough diversity on the team. Diversity doesn't mean just race. It means age. It means gender. It means experience. And really what you're looking for is diversity of thought and that diversity of experience so that people can come with different perspectives to the strategic decisions you need to make. And I'm a firm believer that Blockbuster probably didn't have that diversity in place. 
Otherwise, they would have recognized that streaming video would probably overtake their physical media you know, model that they had in place. As we look at agile organizations and what they seem to all have in common, they have a workforce that is not afraid of change. A lot of companies have workforces that hate change, dread it, and just are, are scared. The, the expression goes, I'm not afraid of change. Change is great. You go first. Yeah, exactly. And so some of those top companies purposely induce change on a very regular basis. And I wrote about this in the book as well. They are always shaking things up, right? They're, they're promoting people, they're moving personnel, they're reorganizing, they're just constantly changing things internally. And those companies typically have a workforce that doesn't view change as scary. They view change as an opportunity. And that's what the best companies in the world have always done. They view changing markets as a, a, an opportunity for us to do something different, do something better, dominate a new market. And uh, that, you need that if you're going to be an agile organization overall. In order to make a change to the culture, does that always have to start at the top or can it start within a division or department or team? It doesn't always have to start at the top, but it usually does. <laughs> and it's probably best that it does. Meaning that the top doesn't necessarily have to have the idea that we need to change something here, but they've got to lead that change going forward. And so that's the way I start out the book, just talking about how critical it is for if you're going to have successful culture change to have that buy-in and that commitment from the CEO and the leadership team to making that happen. But very quickly, that leadership team needs to create a co-creation mindset inside the company. And they have to have many others inside the company be involved in that change, certainly feel as if they are helping to architect that culture change overall. And once you have that kind of dynamic where you have clear leadership, clear vision for what you want going forward, but then the buy-in and the co-creation mentality of the workforce you're typically on your way to a successful culture renovation. Can you share an example of an organization that embraced that? Maybe they didn't initially have that buy-in, but they were able to see the benefit of it, made a decision, and then proceeded with renovating some aspects of their culture. Yeah, there's several examples that I have in the book, but I'll start with, let me start with T-Mobile, which I always think is a fascinating story. T-Mobile is going to be written about in business schools across the country if it's not already for being one of the more remarkable turnarounds overall. We don't have to go back too many years to remember when T-Mobile was the dregs of the wireless industry. They were the bottom of the, they were losing customers left and right and Verizon and AT&T and Sprint were eating their lunch. And then they brought in John Ledger to be the CEO. And really out of necessity, John recognized, look, we gotta do things incredibly different in this company if we wanna survive. And he created an uncarrier mentality inside the organization. He said, look, we're going to have to shake up the industry to really improve going forward. But first, we got to shake up how we do things internally as well. And so he listened to the workforce. And I talk a lot about this as one of the early things that you need to do to successfully change the culture. Don't assume you know exactly what the culture is. In fact, most leadership teams that do that, they'll get it wrong. You have to get out there and listen to the workforce. And there's a lot of ways you can do that listening. It's not just the engagement survey, which is probably the most ineffective way to do it. You want to put in many listening channels, maybe use some technology like uh, natural language processing to really understand how the workforce feels about the culture to help you understand where are we today? 
what do I want to make it look like going forward? And then let's enlist that workforce to, to help us with. And they're a great example of if you want to see external improvement with your customers and just within your marketplace, focus first on the internal improvement. Once you get your culture, then your employer brand and your consumer brand tend to follow suit. And those all have to be in sync. And I thought T-Mobile did a great job of that, of being a bit of a rebel. They shook things up internally. They questioned, why do we do it this way? And at the same time, they, they did that externally. They got rid of the annual contracts. They got rid of a bunch of roaming fees. They just really did things that were very common in the wireless industry to change themselves externally. And one of the best parts about that story is uh, Ledger himself. When he started at T-Mobile, he was a suit and tie guy, short hair, glasses. He looked like he was straight out of Wall Street. He changed himself. He made himself. He grew his hair long down to his shoulders. He wore T-shirts and leather jackets and always had T-Mobile blazoned everywhere and sported the colors of the company on his sneakers and on his, his clothes. And everything he did had T-Mobile blazoned. But he was he became a rebel and he became known as being just an incredible character and charismatic CEO, swearing on earnings calls, but telling everybody he knew, look, I'm the same guy, whether I'm sitting at the bar or whether I'm talking to a bunch of industry analysts. And that's the way it's going to be. And I want you guys to act that way. So it's a nice story about how a company just completely turned themselves around. Today, T-Mobile is their increase in market cap is been incredible, way above you know what their competitors have been. They've been taking market share from their competitors, and they're really a darling of the wireless industry today. And to bring our example full circle, change is scary, and I'm going first. He embraced the change and personified it in addition to setting policy and leading his teams. That takes a lot of personal courage. It totally does. And I think as you look at the different CEOs that I profile in the book, they are not afraid to show that they embrace change. They're also very transparent. That's another quality that I think is ubiquitous among great companies. There's not a lot of secrets. It's very clear what people are trying to do. The CEO on down is very transparent about all aspects of the company. Does having a particular culture necessitate better performance or does better performance occur as a result of having an improved culture? I am a firm believer based on the research that we've done. Culture dictates performance. It's not the other way around. I'm not saying that it never happens. Certainly if a company hits it big with a certain product or invention or strikes gold someplace, yeah, the culture might improve because the business fortunes of the company have improved as a result. But that is a small percentage of companies out there. The vast majority of successful companies, they improve their internal culture, which in turn improve their performance. And I start out the book talking about Microsoft as being one of the best culture turnaround stories that we have today. I think what Satya Nadella has done in the last five years has been nothing short of remarkable. When he joined Microsoft, there was a lot of predictions that it was a passe company. It was going the same way Sears has gone, and it just wasn't cool anymore. Today, Microsoft is one of the most valuable companies in the world, often flirting with the most valuable. And a big part of it is Satya saying to the workforce right up front, we have to change our culture if we want financial success to follow. And they did numerous things inside of Microsoft that I think are great blueprints for any company to follow, big or small, to really have a, a 
positive impact on the culture itself and then have financial performance follow. Book, you talk about the importance of identifying those who don't fully buy in on the management team, people who don't believe in the strategy, people who are taking pot shots at it, people who are expressing their skepticism openly. Does that help culture change or does it detract from what a company is trying to accomplish? Yeah, of the 18 steps, this one is probably the hardest. And I label this one, ferret out the skeptics and the non-believers early. And we talk about that because it's so common when a company is trying to make positive change in their company to have some non-believers or skeptics, leadership roles, usually high, but throughout the organization, who can really thwart your plans, right? And put roadblocks in and derail what you're trying to accomplish from a culture change perspective. So it's important to understand who those people are and either move them out of the way or get them out of the company. Satya certainly did that with some people on his leadership team. I talk about a couple other companies that did that successfully. It's not easy to do necessarily, but it was important to do in order to have that positive change. So looking at the skeptics as energy drains, not everyone else is neutral. I'm sure that identifying those who are bringing additional energy, who recognize the value of the strategy change or the culture renovation are really important to identify and give special support and resources to. What's an example of how that works based upon your research that you shared in the book? Yeah, we talk about those folks as energizers and influencers in the book and how you can understand who those people are in your organization through a technique called organizational network analysis. It's essentially, Bill, going out and asking the workforce, who are your go-to sources? Where does the work flow through? Who are the people that give you energy inside the organization and that you turn to when you need expert advice? Those are the people you want to be culture ambassadors for what you're trying to create. And I have several examples. So AbbVie, which is the pharma spin-out from Abbott Lab, really enlisted culture ambassadors to change the culture and put in place the culture they wanted going forward. Microsoft did the same thing. They understood who those energizers and influencers are first to enlist them in the process. Unless you do the analysis and just try to guess at who those people are, you're probably going to guess incorrectly. A lot of organizations, a lot of leadership teams, they can get sort of the top few people but they miss all these hidden influencers inside the company. Oftentimes, those people are not extroverts, they're introverts, but they are the people that just make stuff happen. And when I, as I'm saying this, I bet listeners can think of a face of somebody in an organization they work with today or in the past of just people who were the make it happen people, but often flew under the radar. Those are the people you want to enlist as culture ambassadors going forward and really leverage their skill sets. From what you've learned, what does that conversation sound like when you enlist a culture ambassador? And how do you let them know and recognize a role that they've been playing informally and then give them some additional assignments or responsibility to amplify the good effect they've been having? Well, and that's exactly what some of these companies have done. They, they assemble these people formally and they do so as they identify these uh, potential culture ambassadors. They bring them together to enlist their advice, ask them what they think needs to change, and then lay out what the leadership team is thinking about from a future culture perspective. 
And that's, I do highlight several companies who have done that in the book. I mentioned AbbVie, which I think is a good one to follow because they initially had some skepticism. Are these people really important? Do we really need this? But if you're a company that has a dispersed workforce, I think particularly today in the pandemic where we've got a lot of virtual workers, it's important to try to get those folks on board so that they can really influence the rest of the organization. These companies have set up specific programs at Microsoft, they called it the culture cabinet, for example, but specific programs where those people are getting communication and inside information from the senior leadership team that the rest of the workforce maybe not isn't necessarily getting. Kevin, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I sure am. Go ahead, Bill. So at the beginning of the interview, I asked you about a person who was influential growing up, and you talked about your dad. When you were a teenager, Kevin, what was a song that you really were into? I was a Led Zeppelin fan in high school, among other bands. I always got uh, romantic about songs like Ramble On by Led Zeppelin and or Going to California. And as a East Coaster, they, I always felt like the, the worldly lyrics in those songs were very enticing because I didn't travel a lot when I was in high school. And I was always interested in, you know, how do I expand my horizons? So that that's probably what I would have thought of when I was in high school, Bill. Evan, what's your definition of personal success? I'm doing something I love and I'm good at it. And I think that's really what you know, personal success boils down to. Uh, too many people are in roles that they don't love. And I think it's important to figure out what are you really passionate about? What you know makes you excited? And are you good at it? You know, and that's to me, once you hit those two marks, you're going to feel like you're successful. What would you say is the best advice I gave you? It's, it's interesting. I go back to a teacher I had in high school, Mr. Steinbeck, William Steinbeck, who was the journalism high school teacher of the year one year. And uh, I love journalism. I went on to major in journalism, believe it or not, in college. And he would constantly ask me a simple question. Is this the best you can do? When I turn in work, and sometimes the answer was no, I can do better than this. And I always appreciated his just simple direct pushing me to do better and better. He was the hardest teacher I had in high school and my absolute favorite. And a lot of times those don't go together. People like the teachers that are more of the easier teachers, the class clown teachers. He was not a class clown. He was a very serious guy, but I learned so much from him. I can relate. Great teachers mean a world of difference. If you could have chosen or created any career or achieved any level of success in a parallel universe, what would it be? I hope I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. And I'll tell you what, Bill, it's just so rewarding, particularly right now during the pandemic, to see what our organization is doing to help these companies through this. The human capital function, for whatever reason in the past, was never considered a very serious role. HR is often ridiculed, right? And it has been for years. That has changed dramatically over the last few years. And you're seeing the most successful companies in the world the head of HR is the right-hand person to the CEO and is a critical leadership role inside the organization. I don't know why it's taken us this long to figure this out, but almost every company is successful because of the quality of the talent they have and how successful the, the entire organization and the teams in that organization are working together. And the CEOs of top companies today view that HR role as the one that helps them shape the culture they want, gets that talent to work effectively. 
It's so true. I've always thought of HR as a bifurcated career path, similar to finance and accounting, where if someone in accounting wants to stay accounting and just look at the past and settle the accounts, that's going to be a limited, more limited career path than someone who looks at finance and looks to how we can deploy our capital in different ways and what investments should we be making. Similarly, in HR, someone could be going down the benefits career route and it's a limited route with very predictable, very stable steps, or they could get into the human capital improvement arena and say first or second largest investment that any company makes is in their human resources. And how do we develop that? How do we maximize that? How do we really put that to the best use possible? Does that make sense to you based upon your work with these leaders? Yeah, absolutely. It's gone from tactical to strategic. We used to have the personnel department back in the tactical days. Today, it's all about strategic human capital. And I have several quotes in the book from different CEOs that talk exactly to that. They say how critical the HR function is to them and should be to most CEOs, every CEO out there. In fact, one CEO, this, the CEO of WD, said that if, if this position is not strategic or reporting directly to you, then something's wrong inside your organization. I had another chairman of a board say that's one of the biggest red flags he sees. If the head of HR is reporting into finance or reporting into legal, instead of the CEO, he knows that people aren't valued inside that organization. So we have moved very quickly from tactical to strategic, and it's just a great transition to see. What's the best $100 purchase you've made in the last six months? Purchased several different books on culture, and I'm in the middle of reading all of these books. And I think what the pandemic has offered me is some freedom to, uh, to actually spend more time reading. And so I, I would have to say probably under $100, just several of these books that I've purchased that I think are giving me insight. And uh, I'm always trying, because I write so much and speak so much, I always am looking for the input as well. And so I try to make time for that input. And these books have certainly you know, helped with that input side and giving, I've now have some time for, for input from these, from the different culture books that I've purchased. What book would you say that you've given as a gift more than any other professionally in the last year? By far, Hit Refresh, which is the book that Satya Nadella wrote a couple of years ago about the changes that he made at Microsoft. I've given that book out to my entire company. I've given that book out to uh, different friends. It's a wonderful book and highly recommend it to anybody listening. One of the other aspects that you cover in the book is what to do once you've made cultural renovations and how that informs every aspect of how you operate your company. Can you talk about an example of a company that went through this process and it made significant differences in how they onboarded people? Yeah, it's interesting. This happens a lot, Bill. A company will have a lot of fanfare around changing their culture and put a lot of effort into it. But if you don't equally have the same energy and, and investment in maintaining the culture, you can quickly revert back to the way things used to be. And so out of the steps that we talk about in order to successfully change culture, maintaining the culture encompassed several different steps and onboarding was one of those. It's important when you're bringing people on board to the company to indoctrinate them in the culture. And our research has shown that one of the best things you can do with a new employee is set them up with a network of subject matter experts and people that will help them succeed long term. 
It's the people that come on board that end up never really connecting with others, being isolated, feeling lonely. Those are the people that burn out pretty quickly. This is probably more of a challenge in a virtual working environment like we have today than ever before. So it's important for the manager of that's bringing that person on to really focus on how do I set this person up for success by getting them connected to the right people inside the organization. And we talk about different ways to do that. Can you share one or two specific ways that make a difference? So some specific ways that make that happen. I talked about organizational network analysis before. It's important to keep monitoring the connections that person is making over time. And you can use that, that ONA process in order to do that. There's a, a science behind push versus pull. And the way a lot of people try to set up those connections is a very proactive way where they're going out and meeting with different people inside the organization and trying to learn about their business and what they do in their division department, et cetera. That's fine, but the most successful people create a pull mentality, which is these other departments quickly see what skills I have, what I can offer, and it, the more you can get out there and offer to help those organizations be successful, the more quickly that individual is going to be indoctrined into the culture, going to probably get promoted, get grow in their career inside the organization. And so there's some techniques I think you can do to you know make people recognize the skill set you have. But I think managers help with that. They can recommend to other managers, hey, I've got this rock star on my team. I know you're, you need help in one particular area. I think they have the skill sets and the energy and the time to be able to help you, that will create a lot of value for that individual. So if your onboarding process right now is a few hours, half a day or a day, I'm telling you right now, that's not enough. That is too short. And you've got to look at onboarding as a year-long process uh, that typically starts before they even started the company, um, but continues on for quite some time. We're going to sing the song of it is a process, not an event, <laughs> in order to be effective. Yep, exactly. And a lot of people treat onboarding as an event. and those onboarding events, those onboarding days, most employees would tell you it was very ineffective over. Kevin, I wanted to thank you so much for all that you've shared. You've been extremely generous with talking about ideas that you've uncovered from your book, Culture Innovation. We started with your dad, who not only was a great role model in his ability to be successful as a businessman and make the transition from farm to the, the business world, he also gave you that experience as a young boy so that you came out of it realizing that nothing seems hard. After you've worked the tobacco fields for long days, week after week during the summertime, plowing through another book, writing another report, having another phone call, none of that seems hard in comparison. You talked about how important it was to have the ability to be agile as a business. Rather than talk just about transformation, which has become hackneyed, you've talked about it in terms of renovation, where you could keep what's working, and then build upon those good pieces. You talked about the two risks of being complacent or leadership that lacked and identified that workforces that are successful in making those renovations have leaders who are not afraid of change and who can embody them, similar to John Ledger of T-Mobile, who not only said we need to change if we're going to stay around, but he embodied it by changing his language, by changing his dress, by wearing the T-Mobile sneakers and the logo wherever he went. He really was all in. 
We talked about also how that led to very measurable and significant business improvements with the finances and market share. We talked about cultural performance and how culture dictates performance. The research shows it clearly, and it's really important to see that if you want better performance, one of the ways to start with that is to improve the culture. And then any skill application that you add beyond that is going to be amplified because of the investment you made in the culture. We talked about examples like with AbbVie Pharma, who is the spinoff of Abbott Labs, and being able to amplify that effect and impact by bringing together some of the better energizers and influencers within their organization. Kevin, for these and so many more reasons, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best and sharing your wisdom today. Thanks, Bill. It was fun. Hey, Kevin, before we say goodbye for now, can you tell me where we can go to find out more about you and your work online? Yeah. Based on this conversation, probably the website for the book is the easiest, and that's uh, culturerenovation.com. Well, Kevin, we're going to link to the book website, as well as to your company website, your social media channels, and all the other ways that people could stay in touch and continue to learn more about cultural renovation and the thought leadership that you're providing. Excellent. Kevin Oakes, author of Cultural Renovation. Once again, thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.